You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you want to have your Bible open there at uh, Romans chapter 5 that we read, we're going to use uh, really verses 6 to 11 as our focus tonight before we come to the Lord's table on this Easter Sunday evening. <clears throat> I wonder, have you ever noticed that whenever you look at a window, depending on which angle that you're standing at, you either see a reflection of yourself or you see everything that's behind you. Over the course of a handful of verses, Paul is reminding us here in Romans chapter 5 very clearly and with great transparency how we are viewed from heaven's perspective. Paul wants us to take in God's perspective on us tonight. And in Romans chapter 5, like looking into that window pane, Paul wants us to see who we are, face on, warts and all, but he's also determined that we do not miss what's behind us. Two perspectives in this passage tonight, who we are and what is behind us. And so let's begin by seeing ourselves as God sees us. First of all, how God sees us, our detestability. Between Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, Paul says the same thing about us, but he says it in three different ways. Look at verse 6. First of all, he describes us as weak or powerless. Verse 8, he says, we're sinners. Verse 10, he says, we are God's enemies. Or to put it a very simple way, we are not morally strong enough, neither are we good enough, and God is not happy with us, and we are not happy with him. Our weakness comes from that sense of never being able to do enough to please God. None of us will ever be able to do enough to please God. In our hearts, we think that sometimes by caring for others, by being generous with our time or our money, we'll somehow twist God's arm up his back to convince him of our kindness. But folks, being sincere does not cover our sin. As sinners, for that is who we are, we have constantly fallen short of the targets that God has set for us. We are never as committed never as concerned or compassionate about God and other people as we are called to be, which leaves us uncertain in ourselves and ultimately guilty and condemned before God. You know, we spent our lives running from God, building our own kingdoms, loving our own glory, lapping up the pleasures of this world, shutting our ears to God's word, trying to save ourselves, always by comparing ourselves to others instead of falling on our knees before God's holiness. But as we do that, we continue hollow out a deeper hole of horror that we will face, described in verse 9, as God's wrath. God's wrath. You see, the Bible has been very gracious to us. God has been good to us. He has warned us of God's impending wrath the impending judgment against all sinners. But God in his kindness has revealed to us the difficulty that we're in. That's the blessing of the Bible. 
he tells us the bad news before he can share with us the good news. He shows us the difficulty we're in before he shows us the way out of that difficulty. And verse 10 really should disturb us, shouldn't it? Look at how it describes us all in verse 10. Enemies of God. Think about that for a moment. That describes us. Enemies of God. And that feeling is mutual. God has a settled anger against sinners. He is an enemy of sinners. He is not set against us because of what we do, but rather he is set against us because of who we are. We're sinners, natural born sinners. That is in our DNA from day one. Our consciences confirm this. And as a result of the greatest obstacle to our happiness is the incoming wrath of God. It doesn't matter how much you think of yourself or how much your family adores you or how much your friends admire you or how much your boyfriend or girlfriend is besotted with you or how much your cat or your dog or your grandparents are all over you. God won't judge you by how much you're loved here on earth or how many Instagram likes you get or how many cute photographs there are of you around your house or how many acres you farm, or how many sports medals you own, or how many top grades you've achieved, or how often we read our Bibles, or how often we've said our prayers. God will judge us and we will face his wrath if we are an enemy of God. Because if God is against us, it doesn't matter who is for us. It means we're ruined. If God is against us, we are utterly ruined. We're all enemies of God. We toward him in rebellion, he toward us in his wrath, and therefore we need to be reconciled to God. We need someone to broker a peace deal between us and God. None of us sees ourselves as we really do before God. All of us compare ourselves to each other as opposed to God, and that's fatal. It's like that half-eaten packed lunch that's left under a school desk for the duration of the Easter holidays. You know, the teacher come back on the Monday after Easter and there's this unpleasant whiff in the air, but she can't detect where it's come from. And it gets worse and worse as the week goes on, a putrefying smell in the classroom. And the caretaker, you've told him to come in and he can't smell it. And you've brought the other teachers in and they can't smell it. Do you smell that, you say? Do you smell what I smell? And they're only in for a few months and they don't smell it. But she smells it because she's living with it. It's an increased smell of decay. Something is dying in that classroom until it's discovered and dealt with. And friends, there's absolutely no doubt for us without the removal of that stench of our rebellion before God, our lives as unrepentant sinners stink to high heaven. God wants us to almost get a bit of a whiff of what he smells of us tonight and how horrendous that is. Folks, you stink before God. You utterly stink before God. To quote from heaven how I got here, the book that we've been serializing every night online for these two weeks coming up to Easter, the story of the thief on the cross, he says, as these thoughts rolled around my mind, I began to see that my greatest theft lay not in stealing from Rome, but in robbing God. I had chosen to spend the life God gave me on myself. I had thought about this life as mine rather than his, and had given him no place in it. I had measured my life by what satisfied me, 
and on that basis I considered that my good outweighed my bad. But as my life was slowly bleeding out to a miserable end, I knew I was far from good and far from God. That's what we see when we look into the window of God's Word. We have been robbing God of the life that He gave us because we claim it as mine, not His. And it's not the window that's stained, but it's us. The dirt clings on our side. But if you come to the window from another angle, you see very clearly what's going on behind you. And on this Easter weekend, that's the privilege of God's people, to see not a reflection of ourselves and our sin, but we can look to past history. And that's the second thing. How God saves us. Past history. You see, the glory of these verses is this, and you need to follow it along very carefully. Have a look at verse 6. Jesus didn't die for us once we became strong. Verse 8. Jesus didn't die for us once we had overcome our sinfulness, kicked that bad habit, or cleaned ourselves up. Verse 10, God did not reconcile us to himself, in other words, make us his friends, once we made friendly approaches towards him, waving the white flag of surrender. In other words, God didn't meet us halfway. God refused to hold back, cautiously assessing if we were worth saving. That is not his heart. He and his own son, Jesus, took the initiative to save us in absolute defiance of what we deserved. And there's an order that's remarkable, enduring, all-conquering love. It's very simply put. Do you see it? Look at verse 8. God the Father loves, verse 8. Verse 8, Christ the Son died. Verse 9, his blood was shed. Verse 10, that is the power to reconcile us and make friends out of enemies. And verse 11, meaning that as a result of Jesus' resurrection, we too are saved. There are two things I want you to notice from this. Here's the first. It is only God who can rescue us from his own judgment. How do I know? Well, look really closely and note carefully in your Bibles what we call five passive verbs. Now, don't panic if you haven't considered verbs since your primary school days. Verbs are simply those doing or those action words. And passive verbs are when something is done to us or done for us. And that's really important. These are things that are done to us and done for us. And incredibly, despite our sin, despite our stink before God and status as sinners, God does all the work. Look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified. We have been justified. It doesn't say we justify ourselves. We have been justified. Verse 9, how much more shall we be saved? Someone's doing the saving. Shall we be saved? Verse 10, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved? Do you see that? It's so important to see this. Someone is doing the work for us. Someone is doing all the heavy lifting, doing something in us that we could not do for ourselves. Read those verses carefully again even later on and see who's at work. Who is justifying us, saving us, reconciling us, raising us? It's God the Father through God the Son. We couldn't have cared less. 
We were weak, sinners, enemies. But we come to see as the Holy Spirit floods our hearts that Jesus walked through my death. He didn't simply die. He was condemned. He didn't simply leave heaven for me. He endured hell for me. He, not deserving to be condemned, absorbed it in my place. Folks, that is the Father's heart. That's what verse 8 summarizes. Do you see it? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Greek word therefore shows, God demonstrates, shows his own love for us, means to bring something clearly into view. In other words, it's to wipe that window clean. Or probably the better idea is, if any of you visited Times Square in New York, it's a clear, in-your-face, cannot-be-missed sign for the whole world to see. While you were still a sinner, he died for you, placarded for the whole world to see. In Christ's death, God is confronting any misplaced views that we have of God. In Jesus Christ, hanging on that cross, God displays before you and me and all of us who doubt and struggle to believe, if God even cares, that he painfully bore what we should have carried. Christ's death on the cross confines any notion that we have in our hearts that God is not interested in the trials of our lives. In fact, the song that we've just sung, His Mercy is More, comes from this quote from Jonathan Edwards, the American reformer, when he said, it's an ocean without bottom or shore. In Christ's death for us as sinners, God intends to put his love for us beyond any question. And folks, that's the good news of Easter. As we consider the whole package of salvation, all the measures that are in place for us, that God has laid before us, from beginning to end, the love of God rescues us from the wrath of God. And the second thing I mentioned within this is that salvation work is all done in the past. It's complete. It's historical, factual, evidential. And today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the folded grave clothes, the empty tomb, the defeat of death. And why is that so important? Well, if Jesus was still hanging on a tree or if Jesus was still lying in a tomb, we would have no hope and our time together would be a complete and utter waste of time. We would have no confidence that his death for us worked. But because God the Father rose him and gave him new life again, it's God saying to us tonight, he is my yes and stamp and approval. Everything is complete. And finally, do you see with me tonight how that reassures us? Our present security. Some of us are sitting here tonight, and I know some of you are thinking, David, I am a Christian, but I still sin. David, I have huge doubts. I have lots of crises of confidence. In fact, this last 12 months, you wouldn't believe the kind of thoughts I've had there. I've drifted, and to be honest, sometimes I just don't know where I'm at in my faith. David, to be honest, I wonder if I'm a Christian at all. You say that all of this is complete, but sometimes I wonder. I just don't get now. I just don't feel it anymore, David. Is that you tonight? Is that you at home this evening? Is that you here tonight? Do you have a real lack of assurance? 
Well, I am so glad you're here. For this final point is the main point of Paul's passage here, because everything I've said leads up to this to be repeated little two-word phrase. The most important two words in Paul's 11 verses here. Do you see them in verses 9 and 10? He uses it twice over. Much more. Much more. Let's read those two verses, verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see what's going on in these verses? Boys and girls, if you haven't been listening for a few months, let me tell you a story to help explain this to us all. Imagine for some reason you had to move house. And you move into a new neighborhood, but on the very first night you're in that new house, a terrible fire breaks out. And your new neighbor, let's call him, let's call him Mr. Armstrong. He sees the smoke and he calls 999 and he breaks a window and he wakes everybody up in the house and he crawls inside and he gets your mom and dad to safety, but they have passed out with the smoke. He hears you calling from upstairs before the fire crew arrives. And he dashes up the stairs and he wets a blanket in the bathtub and he plunges through the flames in the landing. He wraps you in the blanket and brings you and carries you safely outside. But in the meantime, he has received terrible burns on his arms and right across his face. Over the next few months, you become very close friends with Mr. Armstrong. In fact, you go and visit him very regularly in hospital while he gets the skin grafts and the attention that he needs. And so one morning when he finally gets home, you run round to his house and you say, Mr. Armstrong, will you come and see me in my school play tomorrow? Sure, he says, I'd love to come. But during the day, you start to wonder if he really wants to come. Was he maybe just being nice to you because you're young? And so you say to your mum, I'm just not sure that Mr. Armstrong is going to come to that play tomorrow. He might forget, and he probably doesn't really care about me because I'm just a kid. To which your mother replies, you know what? If Mr. Armstrong was willing to run through a fire to save your life and get those terrible burns, then how much more will he be willing to come and see you on stage at school? If he did the hard thing for you, then all the more surely will he do that easy thing. Do you see how the much more of verse 9 is working now? Let's read it again. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The point is to make us all the more confident all the more assured that God not only has saved us in the past historically, but will save you at the very end eternally. And that is our security. That's the glory of Easter Sunday. We don't just trust an idea. We're not just here to celebrate a doctrine. We're here to trust and sing praise to a risen person who is alive forevermore. Let me go on to explain. The focus of these verses is not God's past work for us, but Paul's deepest burden for us is our present security. 
based on that past work. If God sent his son to the world as a helpless baby at Bethlehem and had him crucified looking like a common criminal, taking God's curse and the sin of the world, and then he was laid low in a borrowed tomb, and when we had zero interest in him, what are we worried about now? You see, the language of verses 9 and 10 doesn't look back to the salvation of Jesus accomplished at the first Easter, but it's a guarantee of our final salvation in the future. Paul is saying that it is absolutely, hear me right tonight, folks, because this is crucial, because some of us lack so much assurance. Paul is saying it is absolutely impossible to be justified at conversion without God looking after us all the way to heaven. Because you see, conversion isn't a fresh start. Conversion is a regeneration. It's being born anew as new people with a new and an indestructible identity in the sight of God. We were enemies, yes, when God came to us and justified us. How much more will God care for us? Now we're his friends and his sons and his daughters. I love this quote, and I hope it helps someone tonight. John Flavel, a Puritan writer, put it like this. As God did not first choose you because you were high, he will not forsake you because you are low. There's some people here need to hear that tonight. God did not first choose you because you were high, and so he will not forsake you when you are at your lowest. Are you feeling low and far from Christ and beaten down by the world tonight? God didn't set his love on you in the first place because you were strong. He didn't set his love on you in the first place because you had it all together. He chose you because you were weak. He chose you because he knew you couldn't do it by yourself. And the logic of Romans 5 is that God, through his son Jesus, drew near to us when we hated him. His heart was gentle and lowly towards us when we were lost. Will his heart be anything different to us now that we've been found? He loved us in our mess then. He'll love us in all our messes right now. If you're troubled by your sin and your shortcomings today, that is not a sign you are far from God. That is a sign you're his. That is a sign you're his. That is a sign that you hate where you're at and you need to do a continual job of repenting and returning to that truth, that historical truth that cannot ever be outdone. That's the glory of the resurrection. Dear Christian friend, on this Easter Sunday evening, remember the hardest part has already been done for you. God has already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness, and he did it while you were an enemy. Dean Ortland summarizes it like this. Those in Christ are eternally imprisoned with the tender heart of God. If you are in Christ, you are as good as in heaven already. Wow. Yes, we will be without sin and doubt and anxiety and uncertainty and fear in the next life but we will not be any more secure than we are thanks to that first Easter weekend. Everything from Romans 5 is meant to give us assurance that God is for us and he will be with us forever. 
God wants you to leave this room tonight or leave that screen that you're watching later more confident, more assured, more hope-filled, more stable, more firm with this logic at work in your minds. If he gave his one and only Son to justify and reconcile his enemies, how shall he not do everything it takes now to save us completely because we're now his friends? Many of you know the story of Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. Many of you have seen the stage show. Many of you have watched the film with the main character, Jean Valjean. He has this experience with grace that changes his life forever. Remember, he's an ex-convict and he's been paroled. And Valjean is given a bed and a warm meal by a local bishop who takes him in and feeds him and cares for him. But then during the night, he abuses the bishop's kindness and runs off with all his silverware, or so he thinks. And the next morning, the police catch him and bring him back to the bishop's house for questioning. Visibly angry, the bishop reveals how upset he is with Valjean for leaving so quickly, but for leaving without taking the most valuable thing in the house, the silver candlesticks as well, worth far more than all the silverware he's already taken. And so he hands the candlesticks to Valjean. He assures the police that the silverware were a gift and encourages Jean Valjean to promise to become a new man. At this point in the book, Victor Hugo writes, the pardon of the bishop was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack which Jean Valjean had yet sustained. It was a violent grace. It's an intriguing term, isn't it? violent grace, not two words you normally put together. It is an aggressive, active, and it attacks the heart. And only grace, unlike violence, has the power to eliminate enemies by transforming them into friends. And the bishop understands this, and Jean Valjean's life is changed forever. In a similar fashion, a Jewish carpenter named Jesus died on a wooden cross knowing that only through such a violent act of grace could we, enemies of God, be transformed into friends. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son, now that we're His friends. Undeserved favor that is aggressive, active, and on the offensive is violent grace. If we've been shown it, then we also should live in it. Let me leave three things in your mind as we finish. God sees us as we are. God saves us in our sin. Let God's Word and His work for us reassure us now and forever.